Peter says that Paul, some of the things he says are difficult. <laughs> some of the things Peter says, or some Paul says, are difficult. I mean, it's there's a Greek scholar that I listened to that he said he calls Paul. Yeah, I don't think he's not saved actually. He's an agnostic. Um, but he uh, he goes he calls Paul the schizophrenic apostle because there's times that it sounds like to our ears when we're reading it sounds like he says something and then says the opposite in the next line. But you got to understand the parallel he's using. So he's making parallel usage of words so that you understand he means this and not this other thing. So, you know, it's one of the things like, it would be like that. Like you said, I'm drawing a line in the sand, but a line in the sand isn't an actual line. That's clear, but at the same time, you're saying I'm drawing a line, but I'm not really drawing a line. He does stuff like that. I mean, literally, in the 20th verse on there, he says that now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. And you're like, what? <laughs> so, yeah, it's. We're in Galatians. But we're in Galatians four. So we're at the, at the end. We're gonna start in uh, three. Should be twenty six. Three twenty six. Do the last couple of verses and then move on. And just uh, just for review's sake, in chapter one, Paul talked about that there is only one gospel and he preaches it. And two, and he also made fact that you know. Paul was legitimately called by Jesus himself to his apostleship. He's perfect in agreement in the gospel with those who were in Jerusalem at the time. They, they preached the same gospel, even though they didn't con, you know, conspire ahead of time. His gospel is purely from the Spirit. Uh, in chapter 2, he talks about defending the gospel uh, without asking for handouts or anything from the people. He never, He never wanted anything from the people. He also mentions that there's no... That's where he gets into the meat of the issue, which is there's no return to the law. Why the law has nothing to do with salvation. And he spoke about the time that which he rebuked Peter when Peter went to Ephesus, because Peter was in error, in spite of the fact that Peter was essentially an, you know, an old elder than him. Uh, and three, he goes over justification by faith, uh, discusses and gives as examples that we know it's by faith, is that Abraham received the promise 430 years prior to the law being written. And even nine years before circumcision, because people will say, yeah, but circumcision is the seal of the covenant. Well, it was nine more years before he got circumcised, and yet he was considered faithful before that. That's how we know that it's faith and not circumcision, nothing you can do. He, of course, mentions that the law brings a curse, because before you're aware of your sin, you may feel like you're alive, but as soon as you become aware of the law of God you become, realize your sinfulness, and you essentially die. He, you know, he was carefree as a child, but as soon as he became aware of the law, he says, I died, because I knew now that I needed something. So, you know, the law is a curse it, it, that you have, that, that, you know, brings sin to your eyes, and therefore it shows your death, you know, your deadness and your sin. But he also mentions, you know, very next later, that Christ brings you to life, and that, you know, then the only way is because he took his sin, Christ took his sins for us. He mentions that the changeless promise, that it is changeless because even in the beginning, the promise spoke of Jesus when he said, I'll make your seed be what blesses all the nations. He was saying seed, individual, meaning Christ, 
will bless all the nations through him. Uh, and then he also, that last part where he talks about how the law itself is the mediator, that at which he mentions. Mediator wasn't Moses, the law is itself the mediator. And that's because it came from the word of God, meaning the second in the Trinity is that fire. He's the Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, is that, is that one in the desert who led them day and night. He's the one that interacts with us. And so it's a pre-incarnate Christ, the second in the Trinity. He himself wrote the commandments down to, be, to, to essentially hold the people in place because of their sin, because of all the sins that they were doing, because he took them into the desert and immediately they started sinning and transgressing. And so he said, well, we've got to put something down so people have something to look up to, uh, 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 something to gauge themselves by, to make themselves holy before they come before God. Because God wanted to dwell among the people in the temple, but the people had to be clean to do that. So he gave them ways that at which they can try and clean their act up. So it was transgression that the law even came in. And the purpose of the law was simply to act as a convictor of our souls until Christ would come and conquer death and sin, and the Holy Spirit would then come after him, and that's what convicts us of sin today. So the law's only job was exactly that, to convict of sin. So that through it, you would understand you are sinful. Uh, he gives um, many illustrations throughout about, you know, about how that, uh, just that, that, again, we were kept under as like a school, he used the term a schoolmaster, meaning something that teaches over a period of time, and we did also go over in the last week that um, the, the parable of the evil tenants that uh, Jesus gives, that's the one where he talks about having a field, and he let the wine make the uh, gardeners garden it, and he sent his servants, and they beat him, and then he eventually kills his son. Uh, that in Luke Luke 20, is uh, that's actually an illustration of the law being given to the people, but they rejected it, and eventually sent the son in the form of Christ, who would die, or they would ultimately kill. Parable, actually, of Christ. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when he told that, because Christ told that parable, and the people would say, of course, let it not be so, but of course it happened. <laughs> right after that happened, not a couple chapters later. Uh, so, you know, the, the, so far Galatians he tackled a lot, a lot of subjects. He just, Paul just, just going through them, knocking them down. So we're going to start in Galatians 3.26, and we're just going to read through the end uh, of the chapter, and then just go over a couple of concepts just to make sure we don't miss them. It says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Now, the uh, as we go through that and we notice, you know, he's talking about putting on Christ. Paul likes to use that the terminology of putting on in Romans 12, he uses the concept, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
those terms in Greek are actually references to like clothing yourself, like how you would make yourself appear as one thing or make yourself appear as almost like you belong to a group. How like you'd put on whatever, a long linen robe and then you'd look like a priest type of thing or making yourself appear. So when Christ, and that's why he is in Galatians, in uh, Romans 12, he talks about don't put on to make yourself appear like man, instead transform, meaning literally change yourself to be more like Christ so that you're shining more like Christ. And here he has a, gives that very thing. If you're going to be Christ, if you are Christ, put on Christ, meaning don't become, be fully in, in every fiber of your being, try to be as Christ as much as you can. There's also the next <laughs> line in Thereafter, it talks about there's neither Jew or Greek. And he says, and if you be Christ's, uh, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This verse causes a lot of controversy in the, in the church because you have two different concepts. You have a concept called dispensationalism, and you have a concept called replacement theology. Many churches believe many different things. And the reason why is because there are certain different places where the Bible uses the term dispensation, which essentially means like a period of time that at which something is relevant. So depends on who you're reading. Like Schofield in his original version listed eight dispensations. You had a period of time when Adam was on earth where it was an oral, orally given to Adam and Adam was essentially like the one who would be the, the moral authority on earth. Then you had another one of dispensation. Now they in later they cut it from eight down to five, I think, in the second printing of the Schofield. And the modern Schofield may still only have five, or it may have eight. I don't know. There's because there's three different Schofields that you can use. There's the original. There's what's called the old Schofield, and there's the Schofield three. They all say different things, based basically. And, and while I'm there, I actually might put an, a. a a warning on that type of thing, because I get a lot from people who will say, well, you said something, and I looked in my study Bible, and it says something slightly different. Remember, the notes in your study Bible are not inspired. Just like I can be an heir. If I said something, and I'm an heir, then I'm an heir. And I'll look into it, and I'll see, and if I'm an heir, I acknowledge that, and I apologize. However, the people who wrote the Bible are also human. They're not the Bible, the notes in the Bible, are human. The actual Galatians, this text we're reading here, this is inspired word of God. The comments added in, like Ryrie actually adds the comments in the middle. Schofield, they're on the sides. They're different based upon different who's doing them. There's the Holman has their own study Bible. Oh, there's all kinds of stuff. Those are made by people. John MacArthur has his own study Bible. Those are his thoughts. John MacArthur is a great man. Amazing ministry. I do not believe that his notes are inspired. So if he contradicts something that John Piper says, that's two men having disagreements about what the unalterable text of God means. Because they disagree. John Piper and John MacArthur both are Calvinists. They both believe certain things. They both claim to be, you know, all these different issues. And yet they have differences. They will look at the same text in the Bible and say, well, this means this and that means that. And so study Bibles are great because they give you a launching point. They can explain things a little deeper. I personally tend to stay away from the study Bibles 
and I tend to go more like the Thompson Chain reference, which is more just connecting things based upon the words they're using rather than so much as the actual, like, putting an opinion in it. Um, they have you go to another place in the Bible to back it up. Right, exactly. Right, there's a, there's a chain, yeah, right, there's a chain of thing, meaning you, you basically, like, in most things, if you're doing literature, let's say you were studying a Greek story, and you're saying, it claims this person exists. You're supposed to be able to have to find that person in three sources before you can say verifiably, three independent sources, that he actually existed. Well, same thing with literature. If there's, there, people are saying, well, I, there's a book that existed, doesn't exist now, but it existed in the first century, People are quoting from it. Well, if you can only find one person saying that, then you can't verify that. But if many people are quoting from the same thing, then that book existed. So using a very scientific approach like that about how that, you know, if a lot of people do seem to agree on something, there's a good chance that what it means. I never, ever say that the majority rules, though, because somebody told me one time, well, is the majority always wrong? And I told him, yes, usually it is. Because the majority of people in the country at one time thought slavery was a good idea. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Not the way we were practicing it. There is a form of indentured servitude in the Bible that God's okay with, yeah. but not the way we were doing it. So if they want to get more biblical, then okay. But men are fallible. And if the majority, all, if everybody agrees, if let's just say tomorrow we woke up and 90% of people agreed abortion was okay, it'd still be wrong. Yeah. No matter what it is. And it can be something as major as that. It can be something as simple as dispensational versus replacement. The difference is, of course, is the dispensation. Again, you have all these dispensations, and then you have like the mosaic dispensation where the law was in charge. And this is the get around the fact that people feel when they read the Bible that God applies things differently in different times. Like, there's, there's just variations. The Old Testament says about all these things. And then you'll hear Jesus saying, well, it allows you to get divorced, but I say you should never get divorced, save for fornication, for cleanliness. They say, well, that's a dispensation. Jesus set up a new dispensation. So meaning that there's no replacing of things. It's just that there's a new era. That's what somebody wants to agree. They can agree with it. Unfortunately, it's one of those things where I think it's in the middle somewhere, where the term dispensation is in the Bible, but I don't think it means what people want it to mean. I don't think it means that. I think it just means a period of time that at which something was happening. And I think it means more about we, as people. There was a period of time where people went into Babylon, and because they were in Babylon, they were acting a certain way towards God. It's not that God changed the way he was acting towards people, is that people were acting the way they were changing the way they were acting to God. And so that's a different time. I don't believe that it's saying there's a true dispensation, because I don't believe God changes at all. I believe he was the, front, the same always. However, I also don't agree with the replacement theology, because replacement theology says we as a church are completely in replacement of the Jews. I just don't see that because, of course, we have entire chunks of the Bible, the New Testament, that mention the Jews are still invaluable. We have an entire book of Revelation that keeps mentioning the Jewish people over and over again. We have unfulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament that's mentioning the Jews. So I do not believe that God is done with the Jews and that the church is the replacement. I believe what's happening 
is the term, the best way to describe is adoption. As Jesus said, you have a wild olive tree and you have a cultured olive tree that's been cultivated. You cut off the wild branch and you cut it in like a strip and then you can actually put it to the new branch and tie it on and you culture it into the new branch to try and keep it alive. That's what, it's an adoption. Christ used the term of the branches. We're adding to the tree. The original tree is there. Now, salvation is through Christ alone. So if you're a Jewish person and you're practicing something else, you're not going to have It's through Christ alone. But we are adopted into the concept of a, a nation of priests that, that, that Israel was so that we are joining with a group that was already there. That's, and Paul, throughout Galatians and throughout all the writings, says over and over again, he'll say things like, I'll make, I'll add a nation among a people that was not a nation before. And he's making these references. Those are dual references. It's referencing to what he did with Abraham, where he took a single person and developed nations out of them. And he's referencing, because then when Paul says it, he's talking to Gentiles, not talking to Jews. So he's clearly talking about building church through people who were not previously Jewish. So I believe it's a mix in the sense that people want it to be one way. That I think some of that is honestly anti-Semitism. Some people don't like Jewish people for one reason or another, and they like the idea of replacing them. I honestly do, because I've met very few people who are replacement theologists who are not anti-Yeah, in some way. So I personally believe they're both in there, and the reason why they're both in there, and that's why both sides have a point, is that Israel, Judah, the Hebrews, they are still beloved by God, and God is hurting because they are rejecting him. But he has grafted us in through adoption. And this is one of these concepts that when Paul is writing to the Greeks, they would have had no problems with this. He was writing to Romans, they have no, because the Greeks and the Romans had very strong adoption rules and laws. You could literally adopt a grown man. You could be, you know, I'm 60 years old, I'm not feeling well, I think I might die soon or something. And you say, this man over here is 35, I want to adopt him as my son. And you go and they write up a thing and he's your adopted son. Now, if he's 35 and he's older than all your children that are biological, he becomes the person who runs your estate when you die. So they had very strong adoption rules. You could bring that in. That's the reason why it's so difficult because you read the list of Roman Caesars. It'll say, this guy was the son of this guy. He married this woman who was also that his father's daughter. And there wasn't even a blood relation. He was adopted in because he was a really good general, because he was a really good type of thing. Actually, matter of fact, there's, um, uh, what is his name? Titus's father. Uh, Titus was uh, a, um, he was uh, the emperor Caesar position from the late 70s through the late 80s in the first century. And his father, Vespasian, Vespasian was the very first, he was the first time in like 60 years that a son was actually blood related to, to the father taking over the kingdom. So, you know, the empire. So it, it, they really, so people reading this would have no problem understanding that when you say, oh, we're children now, we weren't before, but we are now. They would just think, oh yeah, adoption. It wasn't a big deal for them. They really didn't make 
we make it a lot more, even in our modern time, we make it a big, much bigger deal than it was back then. I mean, back then, people would walk down the street, and if there was a child crying in a dumpster somewhere, they'd pick it up and raise it, and whatever it asked them. And they would even say, where'd you get the kid? Didn't matter. It's their kid now. They were very much like that. So that, some of the questions we have are because we're removed from this culture. But so anyways, that's, again, that's mainly getting into that concept. I do also want to point that this, where he says that there, uh, in 28, that you know, there's neither Jew or Greek, bond or free, male or female, for all are one in Christ. That's actually, he's quoting Joel. Joel 2, 29. Run back there real fast. It'll be like, you see Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel. It's a little bit more towards the New Testament. So we'll start at 28, but that particular part is, but uh, he's actually, he's making an allusion to the fact that in 2 and so uh, 28, it just says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and all your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days I will pour out uh, my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth and blood and fire and pillars of smoke. See, and he's talking about that in this. So we're looking at this is when Paul makes this analogy, how just how Christ, when he would say, when people would say, well, tell us about the kingdom of God, and, Paul would, and, and Jesus would say, well, in the resurrection, there's this, meaning in heaven, in the future, perfect age and state of things, Jesus is making this, this thing. When they're asking him, what's heaven like? He's telling them essentially what the eternal state is like. So when Paul makes this allusion, he's making an allusion to something that Joel is talking about happens after, basically, you know, the, the day of judgment of God. So when Paul's doing this, he's talking about a spiritual thing, the way that spiritually all people are equal in God's sight. They really are. And so that's why there was neither Jew or Greek or bond or free. He's not. Again, I say that only because I probably don't need that with this group, but I say that only because, believe it or not, <laughs> I've dealt with that when it comes to some of the whole trans gay lesbian thing <laughs> in the last little bit i've had some people mention about the whole trans vestite man women thing that oh paul said they're all the same and i'm like yeah he's talking about spiritually he's not talking about yeah. bodily <laughs> no which again this group i don't have to really make that i'm just i'm kind of doing it for recording's sake <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to end up on youtube my voice on youtube saying that something that I'm not saying. <laughs> okay, so 4 starts off and it says chapter 1 uh, chapter 4 verse 1. Now I say Oops. Okay. It says now I say that that the heir as long as he is a child differs nothing from a servant though he be lord of all but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, we, 
when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. And when the fullness of the time has, was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into their, your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we see, again, we go into the adoption language. And the reason why he's doing this is because he's making allusion back to the previous chapter where he talked about the law being a tutor, being a schoolmaster. It's there to teach us. It's there to guide us. And why? In the absence of the Father. Even if you were to be the king of England, but you're still a prince, when you're young, in essence, you're, he puts you under people who are servants of the kingdom. In spite of the fact that you're... Heirs to the king, you're an heir to the kingdom, but because you're young, you can't handle the fullness. You need to grow up first. So he's saying that he, what the point Paul is making, the reason why he put the law into effect and then waited a period of time was because God, God was waiting and working with the human race so that he could send the Savior at the perfect time. He, we needed as people to change certain ideas, to get certain just to develop in the sense that God gave us the perfect idea of a kingdom, how to run a kingdom perfectly in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And then he put kings down over top. And then they said, well, give us a real human king. And then, of course, it messes the whole thing up. You got Saul, who was terrible. You got David, who tried hard, had him hard after God. But Solomon, again, hard after God, tried, but... And then you got a whole slew of terrible kings that messed the whole thing up. And God gave them everything they needed to know to run it perfectly, and they couldn't. So they needed to, to go through that. They needed to experience the pains of being forced out of their own land. They needed to go through the pains of experiencing exile in Babylon. Those are things that they needed. He couldn't just come into the world at, the, at any time. He had to wait and do the perfect. He was working. God was working behind the scenes, scheduling, th setting things up so that when he came was the perfect time to come. And we're going to jump again real quick to Romans 8. It's just a few pages back. Just to kind of look at some of what... We need to look at Paul to see that Paul is not schizophrenic. He's not... He doesn't, like, he gets in trouble by people for saying, oh, he contradicts himself. He doesn't contradict. He's just difficult to understand at times. So, starting in 8, we're going to start in 1. We're going to read a couple verses. It says, There is, therefore, now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit." For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, 
but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So we see that, again, it's making the point that if, you know, we, that we, that the sin is in condemnation, everything had to be worked, Christ had to come so that he can conquer sin, but then if we continue to go, we're going to see as we read through that it's not so much that It's not. It's one of these weird things. Again, it's a difficulty in understanding God, the mind of God, because we think like, oh, well, he had to wait for us. God had to plan all along. It was never like he had to. We didn't do something. You don't do something and fool God. God's like, oh, I didn't plan for that. Now I have to change events. No, he knew all along. He's God. He's omni. He knows. So it's not like he was, and he wasn't, quote unquote, waiting, essentially, it's, you have to, again, the reason why sonship language and children work so perfectly is you got to consider God does things like we, to us, that we do for children. Like a ch- toddler, you tell the kid, don't touch the stove, it's hot. Kid runs towards the stove. Now, you might push them away, they run again, and then they touch it. You're like, well, I told you not to touch it. You still care for them. You still are sad that they're crying, but you told them not to. They're going to do it anyways. They're going to do their thing. Now that they've touched it, though, they know not to touch it again. Yeah. <laughs> they, now that they've done it, they know not to do it again. Same thing. God can tell us. But sometimes we as people and as groups, as nations, we have to experience. God can say, if you don't do the right thing, you're going to get kicked out of your land. And it wasn't until people got kicked out of the land they said, I think he was really, I think he meant that. Yeah. <laughs> when they got kicked out, because they were spending all that time, even when the Syrians were attacking them, going, we're the beloved people of God. He'll never kick us out. And the prophets are sitting there going, ooh, you're leaving. Yeah. Because God means what he says. He, he, but sometimes we have to experience. We just can't help ourselves. We have to experience it. We can't just take it on faith that God means it. So if we're going to jump to 14 only because... The other part, he just continues the concept of being in the spirit, not of the flesh. But 14, and so Romans 8, 14, he says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So, again, we see the language. He's, he, he is not, he's not schizophrenic. He's really consistent. It's that we have to put everything in context to what he's talking about. So here, you know, in the Romans, he's still talking about, you know, the way we are fleshly. He's getting real rudimentary, real down to the, the, the bare. The Galatians have been around for a while, so he's talking deep theology with them. Things that are a lot deeper and harder to understand. Much like we do with children when we explain the Bible to children. We start them out and we say, oh, there was a Noah's Ark and there was this big flood. We don't sit there and tell them, oh, there was six billion people who drowned. We don't tell kids that. They might figure it out themselves, but we're not just going to make this huge thing out of it because they're little kids. We're only nightmares about it. 
but we're getting them used to it. And then they get a little older. Like I grew up in a church, we had like a four-year rotating curriculum, basically three years of telling all the Bible, and then it started over again. And the next time they would teach it, they would give you deeper. So now all of a sudden you start to realize, wait a minute, a bunch of people died. You know, lots and lots of people died. That's the same concept. Paul, each book, he's not, the reason why some books are hard, some books are easy, it has to do with where the people he's writing to are in their, space, in their spiritual walk. He feels like the Galatians are at a point where he needs to give them heavy theology. When he was writing Romans, he was writing it for beginning believers who were just starting out and may not understand stuff. So like how as he says milk and meat, Romans is milk. Even though it has, some, it has its moments that are tough, Galatians is meat. It's a lot deeper. It's spiritual. You need teeth to bite into it or else you're not, it's not going to work well for you. So we're going to uh, continue reading in Galatians 4. And we're going to pick up in 7. Well, I guess we'll pick up in 6. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then... When ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that, ye have known God, and are rather, or are rather known of God. How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years I am afraid for you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. See, he's... Now Paul gets to the point where... And this is a good thing to do when dealing with other Christians. When you deal with Christians who are doing perpetual sins, and you, you come to them and you're like, Hey man, you're doing this certain thing. It just seems like that that might be not a good thing for somebody who is professing Christian to be doing. Maybe you can cut it out type of thing. And they get hostile towards you or they get whatever. They don't want to take that. They don't accept that. And then you kind of like, you get a little tougher with it. Well, you know, you are a deacon in the church or, or you are doing whatever. Or you're teaching Sunday school. You really think you should be doing that on Saturday nights or whatever type of, you have to get a little stronger with it. Go well, Then they're still at it and you have to just kind of get with them. Be like, listen, you're sinning. And if you're okay with sinning like that, you might need to call yourself before God and ask, do you really believe what God is saying? Because that's, again, that's that point that James is making, where James is saying, you say you're, some people say they're saved, but they have no works, and they brag about the fact they have no works. He's saying, if you really believe God, that God, what God said is true, God also said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You say, I do. He said, and love each other. So if you're not showing anything to anybody, if you're being just a mean person to everyone, you say, but I'm saved because I believe in God. He goes, oh, that's great. The, the, the demons believe in God too, but they're going to hell. Yep. So can that faith save you? Can a faith that says, I believe God, but don't do anything he says? Well, if you don't do anything or believe anything he says, then how do you believe in what he, 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 
That's just a belief in God. That doesn't save anybody. So here, we have Paul getting to the brass tacks, and he's saying, some of these problems you're having, some of these errors you're having. The Galatian church was founded by Paul, and they're, they're claiming to him, you have no authority over us because, so we don't even answer to you because you're not a real apostle anyways. You weren't with the original 12. They're saying stuff like this to Paul. So Paul's going, now I'm going to get tough. I'm worried. Now he's saying, not, I don't think you aren't saved. He's just telling them, because you look at the way he says it in, in 10. Because the reason why he's observing days and months and times and years, that's a reference to the rabbinic cycles. The rabbis are not the priests. What the rabbis say are not legit. So, observing days and months and times and years, he goes, I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. See, he's, he's making a comment. He's just saying, I'm afraid, because if you're having some of these errors, you can't be as deep as you claim you are. So, again, that's a good way to deal with it. If you're going to approach and broach something with somebody who's in a serious error, sometimes it helps to really you know, burrow down into what, what's being said. So, and this is something that Paul, he does in some ways, but at the same time, he's the other way around too. He, 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 when he believes people are right, he also pats them on the back and gives them a pep talk when they're down. Just sometimes some people are just down. They're doing something and they're, and it's kind of like it's the result. You, you get knocked down and you go into old habits all of a sudden. Well, sometimes the way to break that isn't because, you know, you need to be pat on the back. Hey, buddy, get back up. Get, get moving again. You can, you're fine. Again, other times the reason why they fall back into the habit is because they never wanted to break the habit to begin with. So they need to be dealt with a little bit tougher. Um, and I had just written down as a... <laughs> as a... Uh, cross-net reference, and we're not going to go there, but Colossians 2.20 is a really good cross-reference to see how he, <laughs> how Paul deals with a church that's actually good, doing a good job and is in a good place. So we're going to start in 12, and we're going to go for a little ways again. So 12 says, Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as you are. You are not injured, you have not injured me at all. So he's saying, even though you're questioning what I'm saying, I'm not actually mad at you over it. 13 says, Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Again, this is him going after, and he's going hardcore, but he's right after he just made a tough statement. He goes back to the fact that if you go into Acts 16, Paul went on his second missionary journey, it was a tough situation. It does, Acts doesn't tell us everything that happened, but it must have been tough because it says they tried to go one way, they were stopped, tried to go another way, they were held up. The one time it says the Holy Spirit forbid them from going, 
a certain way, and so they had to turn them around. And when the Holy Spirit forbid them from going, that's when they turned around and went into Galatia and ended up planting this church that they're talking about. So evidently, and he's talking, and he doesn't tell us what, but there was something. He either got sick, deathly sick. There was a situation. It could have been, there was something. But he says, when I came to you, I was sick to death. And you healed me. You nursed me back. And he even acts as though he says it was, in a t it was through a temptation of his. So evidently he must have done something that caused him the error. Now it could have been anything. He was a tent maker. He could have been doing something and who knows? Looked the wrong way and spiked his hand. Who knows what happened? Well, I'm, I'm not going to guess on that. But he says when he went there, he was sick on death's doorstep. They nursed him back. And he says right in there, he's saying, the reason why I don't have, even though I'm upset that you're doing this, the reason why I don't have animosity is because I know when I went there to you, you would have plucked your own eye out and gave it to me if it had been possible. That's how nice you were. He goes, why then, are you, why, where's that hospitality you spoke of? Why are you now being mean that we have a disagreement on something, you know, about salvation? So, again, this is another situation where it's a perfect way to go after a subject. He starts off soft, he mentions it, he gets hard with them, but then he gets soft afterwards. So he doesn't just keep pounding on them with a hammer. He, he hits them once. And then he puts his hand on him and helps him. He goes, I know you guys are good guys. Come on. So we're going to start in 17 and we're going to continue going. And uh, he says, oh, wrong verse, wrong chapter. <clears throat> 17 says, they zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. But is it good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you? My little children, of whom I travailed in birth, again until Christ be formed in you. So, there's... This is one of these situations where this is sort of a precursor to what was going to happen later in Jude and all that stuff with the people coming in and purposely deceiving. Because obviously, evidently, somebody was doing this on purpose. And this remakes it. Again, Paul isn't always... But if we go back a little bit and start in 16 and we read it, you'll see that he's talking about somebody's coming in and changing doctrine. So he says about that, so, am, so 16 says, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? He's saying, I'm telling you the truth. Then he says, they zealously affect you, but not well. Meaning they're not telling you a good thing. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. But it is good. But is it good to be zealously affected always in a good thing and not only when I am present with you? Meaning it sounds good. What they're saying sounds good. You're going, oh yeah, but why are you only zealous about this particular thing when I'm not present? So Paul's saying when I'm there, you guys seem like you say all the right words. And then I leave and someone else comes in and you immediately want to believe what they believe. Why would you do that? Why would you, you can't, just because the people are zealous. I mean, if, if a, if a uh, Messianic Jew came in here and started preaching, some of what they're going to say is going to sound great because they are very into Christ as the Messiah. But then they're going to start strapping on laws and there's right. And the thing is, is if you get caught up in the, their zealousy, the fact they're so excited about this, 
you can get caught up in their zealousy. And they're saying they're, they're so zealous that you're getting caught, and next thing you know, you're yeah, yeah, you're agreeing to things that that if you had anyone else, <laughs> any other Baptist preacher or whatever, even Church of God or whatever, talking to you, you would be like, oh no, we can't do that. So is it always good? to be caught up in things just because you feel good in your heart. Just because it feels good at the time. Eh. <laughs> so a good, so again, he's basically, this is that thing where test the spirits. You know, see what do you have to do. Um, we're going to look at Ephesians 4 only because I want to just throw again that, that he is not being... Um, Paul is not being, this isn't a, a simple thing. This isn't just a, this is a key to the whole gospel. This isn't just something you say, well, yeah, I mean, he, they got it kind of right, but they just have a few. When they're adding circumcision, when they're adding baptism to the actual, the actual salvation process, when they're adding Jewish customs in, it's, it's, it is central to the doctrine of the gospel because is the gospel faith? If it's faith and it's belief in what Christ said, then you can't work your way. If you could work your way, you would work your way. You can't do it. Um, so where we were in Galatians, it's probably only about 10 pages to the, towards, the, towards the end of the book. But so Ephesians 4, and we're just going to start right about 11, just so. So this is a reference to the fact that some churches have people who do different things. The leaders of some churches are teachers, some preachers, some are evangelists, some are, it has to do, and there are different things that happen inside the Bible, inside the body. So in 4, and in starting in 11, it says, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So, even in Ephesus, they had a very similar issue with the Galatians. They were so excited about the gospel, but if you were excited too, they would follow you in error right off the cliff. <laughs> right off the cliff. So, just because it seems exciting doesn't mean it's right. Just because they say it and it makes you have a chill in your spine. Well, let me turn the AC down on and you'll all get a chill. That don't mean much. It, it, it has to test against the Bible, against doctrine, about what Christ said. It has to test out. So, uh, and again with this, uh, with that last line in Galatians uh, 4, where it says about, um, and 20, how that he says that, you know, he said we're going to go and it says, 
I desire, he said, well, I'll start 19. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. So he's saying, I want to change my voice. He's, meaning he's, he's yelling, essentially. I'm yelling at you right now. But I would much rather change my voice, be softer. Now, the words in Greek actually mean to, be, to make soft. Meaning, so when he says change my, he's saying, I would much rather be soft with you. He goes, I'd rather, I'd, I, you know, and he's talking about, you know, I desire to be present with you. Because when he's with them, they're on the right track. But the word is, he wants to change his voice. I want to be soft with you. I want to treat you like children. He goes, but, you know, the, that's a problem, though, because he thought they were mature. He thought they were mature Christians. And here they are in serious air. And then he says, for I stand in doubt of you. Again, after making another build-up of how great they were, he says, but I'm doubting, I'm doubting if you truly are being led by the Spirit on this. In this case, he's not necessarily doubting their salvation so much as he's doubting their motives. He's really doubting their motives. Like, and just as an example, I two of my favorite expositional commentaries. Again, these are not gospel, but these are men. But Gill's ex- exposition says... For I stand in doubt of you. The Vulgate Latin reads it as, I am confounded by you. And the Syriac says, I'm stupefied. In the same sense as in the Aramaic. He was, in a sense, ashamed of them for their apostasy and degeneracy. He was amazed and astonished at their conduct. And as the word may be rendered, he could also say he was perplexed on their account. He did not know what to think of them at this moment. So again, this is, and this happens to many churches where you'll see a church and you'll just, you'll go in, oh, they're great people, they're zealous, but you're just like, man, that's a, that's a tough doctrine they got there going. Matthew Henry, Henry has a very similar commentary. Matthew Henry is my favorite people to read. So he's saying the Galatian church was ready to account the apostles as their enemy. But he assures them that he was their friend, and he wants to be their friend. He had the feelings of a parent towards them. He was in doubt as to their state, and he was anxious to know the result of their present delusions. Nothing is so pure a proof that a sinner has passed into the state of justification as Christ being formed in them by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. But this cannot be hoped for while men depend on the law for acceptance before God. So it is a very, if people are pushing laws, tough to say whether or not they're truly saved. However, you don't always have to bring up the salvation part. The way Paul frames everything is, I'm scared for you. Maybe you need to to think about yourself. Think about what you're doing. And again, that's so this is a very in, interesting how Paul does it. He starts out and then he goes right in to the jugular and gets angry with them. And then he gets soft. And then in three, he gets very deep. He just, third chapter, he just burrows down into theology that's deep. Because he feels they should understand this. You should get this if you're that far along. And then in the fourth, he goes back in and he starts talking again when he's being soft. He's saying, you know, I have pain over you. I founded you and I thought you guys were something. Why would you want to cast me off? Simply because we have a disagreement about something. 
is you need to check yourself. That's a huge problem. Many denominations have been started in this country because one person had a problem with another person half the time, not even for something religious. It might have just been they didn't like the way someone looked at them. Little squabbles, little issues. Again, dispensational, replacement theology. That doesn't really change the gospel. But when you start adding things, it does make one question whether you have the gospel. So it's definitely something to look out for as we continue to go and continue to, to, to look through. And again, even when we read our, our, our commentary Bibles and our, and our study Bibles, it's great that they have the stuff in there to help us along. But just as I on Sunday morning will sit there and say, don't trust everything I say, look it up. I'll give you the scriptures, you go look it up. And if you find fault with it, tell me. Same thing. These are men. They have preconceived notions. And sometimes those bleed in <laughs> to what they're saying. So test everything, but try to stay in the spirit. <sighs> we'll bow our heads today for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this day. I thank you for those who have come out and that uh, we will get a, just continue to get a deeper understanding of the currency of your kingdom, which is souls and doing doing what you said. It's one thing to say we believe, but it's another thing to actually do what you say. Help everybody here as we go through this holiday season and life gets busier and it gets colder, that everyone will continue to keep their eyes fixed on you. I pray that you'll continue to walk with us all day by day and help us to be more like you help us to be transformed to the image of Christ every day. We ask all these things in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.